Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And I am very honoured to be joined today by Lauren Lassab Shepherd, um, an academic from the University of New Orleans. Um, we're talking today about her book, Resistance from the Right, um, a, a history of the kind of conservative resistance in academia and on campuses to the progressive changes and radicalism of the 1960s. Um, it's a, a, a fascinating uh, part of the, the kind of the story we think we all know about America in the 60s, but very often there is there's less of a focus on the actual conservative backlash that emerged from that decade, which arguably is, is, is kind of one of the more important things to look at. But anyway, welcome, welcome, Lauren. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you, Nick. It's great to be here. Okay, okay. So... To begin with, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about um, the ideas behind the book and the writing of the book, and, and where where you where where it kind of came from. Sure. Um, so the origin story uh, is that before this was a book, it was my dissertation, and before it was my dissertation, it was just a paper, um, and it started uh, with a question that I had. So um, this would have been. 2015 or 2016, it, it was during Donald Trump's um, first run for president in the U.S. And uh, I was taking a history of higher ed course and I was, you know, reading all about campus radicalism. And I was thinking oh, Trump would have been a college student in 1968 and 1969. So what was he doing? Where did he where did he fall in the story? Um, and so in trying to find where uh, Trump, the student was, um, turns out he wasn't active at all. He he obviously was evading the draft. He did that several times, which was not uncommon for, for men of his 
um, social connection uh, and his wealth. But I found some other people whose names I was very familiar with um, in U.S. political history, people like Carl Rove and Jeff Sessions and um, so many others that appear in the book who appear in the book. And the, the story just kind of kept going from there. And, it, and what I found out in writing this paper is that there was a very boisterous um, sort of conservative and even far right pushback from college students themselves. Um, and so, yeah, paper became dissertation, became book. And now I think it's a it's a career long research interest of mine. Fantastic. Sometimes that happens, doesn't it? You know, something that starts off as a general wondering, you find out, oh, this is now, this is now my life. Okay. Um, <laughs> but exactly. um, I, I, that happened to me years ago when I wondered what it, why, why so many Western intellectuals went to the Soviet Union in the 1930s and then one thing led to another. And here we are. Um, so we, we talk about um, some of the, these 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 individuals, these names. Um, for those that um, are, are perhaps the name Karl Rove is is sort of on the edge of your of your thoughts. Um, this is the person who was described as Bush's brain, Bush's kind of George W. Bush's political strategist, um, who I, I think was kind of sidelined when Trump came along. They, that sort of generation of, um, kind of neocons. I didn't fare very well. No, he's, he is still around though. I mean, you see him pop up on Fox news every, every so often with, with comments. Um, and like, like all others of the Republican party, they've sort of fallen in line around Trump. So any opposition that was there earlier, um, you know, I don't, I don't think he's a never Trumper (laughs) today. No, No. well, so often, often you just get individuals are gifted in sensing where the power is and thinking, well, you know, uh, might as well. Um, so when we, we talk about the, this development of kind of a conservative backlash in uh, campuses across America, um, is it particularly a grassroots thing? Is the, Are these people self-organizing or are there vested interests with money behind um, so it's a little bit of both. Uh, it's mostly that they're, um, it, the phrase I use in the book is astroturf, meaning it looks like it's grassroots. It looks natural and organic, but actually there are some pretty powerful forces with deep pockets, lots of money um, behind them, sort of training and coaching and, and showing them um, how to organize. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, the, I, I will say the far right students, um, I'm not sure if your listeners are familiar with David Duke, but he mm-hmm. is, um, he's an American political figure. Um, most importantly, he's known globally as a white, white supremacist. Um, so David Duke was, was one of these college students and, and he, I think was actually organic. I can't find that he had, you know, big money powers, uh, behind him. I think all of the organizing he did came, um, unfortunately from the heart, but <laughs> some of the other students in the bigger groups that I looked at, like young Americans for freedom, um, they go by YAF also the college Republicans, they had, um, mentors who were two or three generations older than them. Hmm. Um, providing them money and, and showing them, you know, here's how to organize a counter protest, or here's how to write an op-ed for your local newspaper. Um, here's how to attract media coverage for the events that you might be throwing. So yeah, they had, they had a lot of supervision and a lot of guidance. And back then, I mean, it's more, very much more porous now, but you, you know, you have David Duke, who was, um, a significant member of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, 
and you have these various kind of conservative um uh, you know groups uh, you know groups, groups of conservative students now it's arguable that there is no kind of firewall between conservatism and and what you would just simply call fascism there are there's a yeah. kind of a huge overlap between the two and you know trumpist kind of populism has broken that down would you say that there was there was that firewall existed then in the kind of late 60s early 70s where conservative students thinking um, no, we don't associate with that sort of thing Yes, I, I'm glad that you asked that. This is actually it's been kind of hotly contested in political history. Um, there's a there is a camp of American historians who say what we're experiencing is not fascism, right? Fascism was a German and Italian thing in the 1930s and 40s, and it looked a certain way. And then there's another camp who says, no, this is American fascism in 2020, and that's why it doesn't look like that. And so that's that's a big debate. Um, I tend to fall on on the latter half. Um, so throughout the post-war era, your listeners may be familiar with William F. Buckley Jr., who is yeah. um, sort of considered to be the leader of the post-war conservative movement in the U.S. Um, and Buckley's very famous uh, magazine, the National Review, um, sort of functioned as an organ to kind of weed out, you know, who are the respectable conservatives that we can publish. At least that's how the story has been told. But right. one of the things that I argue in the book is that if you if you just scratch that just a little, if you just um, challenge that hypothesis or that claim, uh, you'll find that it's not true. Buckley frequently published people who we would call on the far right, people who are self-described fascist or neo-Nazis. The thing is, he just blotted out that language when their editorials were in his magazine. But if you knew... Um, if you're familiar with names like Revelo Oliver is a, um, is a good example, you could find Revelo Oliver's writing in the American opinion and in Holocaust denying magazines. Right. Um, so these, you know, these people were there, right. Buckley's obviously not going to let them say, you know, all the things that they want to say, but, um, he'll publish the stuff that he likes. And so, yeah, yeah I, I tend to fall in the camp that these, these divisions, these lines were never fiercely or, or solidly drawn. Yeah. I mean, one of my one of my thoughts about kind of Trumpism is that a lot of it is about now saying the quiet part out loud, whereas in previous kind of the fringes between um, conservatism and kind of like fascist thought, the, the quiet bit was said very quietly indeed um, in, in previous previous eras. And there's this stuff that um, you know you 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 couldn't articulate. Coming along to to Buckley. Um, he, because he, he's, like you say, he's this sort of pivotal figure in this in this movement. Um, where where is he in 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 terms of the story of kind of um, this conservative backlash on campus? Where does he figure? Yeah, he's at the beginning. Um, so I I opened the book with um, a, a vignette about George Wallace um, speaking, who is uh, the a former Republican governor of Alabama um, who was a, a known segregationist. And uh, he was speaking at Dartmouth in 1967. And so I opened the book with this question, like, what was this guy doing, you know, at an Ivy League campus at the height of the, uh, the campus wars? Um, and then from there, I, I can backtrack to, to show this actually has a much longer history and you can get into the 30s, but a, a good starting point for the story is in the 1950s when Buckley had graduated from Yale the very first book that he published um, was sort of this like diatribe or this um, lamentation of 
what we would call woke wokeism today on Yale's campus. Uh, of course, that word didn't exist back then, but that's basically what his complaint was that the university was too liberal. It was too open-minded. It had lost its um, Christian roots and it was moving in a socialist direction. Um, and so from there, Buckley became uh, the founding member of a campus organization, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Um, and then also YAF about not quite 10 years later, but in 1960, he founds YAF. And so those, those two organs have different purposes. ISI is like the intellectual group. It's still around today. Uh, they recruit conservatives, young conservatives, um, and they pay for their credentials to give them PhDs or JDs or some other advanced degree so that they'll stay in the academy or in important policymaking decisions um, in the U.S. that affect the academy. So that's ISI. Um, the other organization that he founds in 1960, Young Americans for Freedom, also still around today as Young Americans Foundation, that's an activist camp. So they train students um, to be activists, right, to uh, to host demonstrations and to um, today there's a lot of social media work, but to, to essentially call attention to themselves and their cause. Um. And you, you mentioned sort of Buckley talking about uh, campus being, you know, moving away from these kind of conservative Christian values. And obviously kind of one of the things that you, you've seen in the last perhaps 40 years um, in, in America, maybe even longer, has been a kind of like a, a huge Christian revival. Did the two overlap? Was kind of... Um, are these kind of campus conservatives, uh, is, is Christianity one of their key motivations or is it, is it sort of, is that a sort of a peripheral issue? No, it's definitely, it's definitely always there. I mean, these were, um, you know, by all means, church going uh, white squares is, is the way that they describe themselves. Um, in terms of like the politics of it all, um, you really don't see like uh, Christian coalitions get folded into the GOP and to the Republican Party until about the 1970s. So mm -hmm. that, I mean, that's on the heels of my book. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's some some links there for sure. One of the campus groups that I talk a little bit about in the book um, is called, they're called Crew Today, but um, it's Campus Crusade for Christ. Um, and the the thing that they were so great at doing on campus was fundraising because they were extremely attractive, right? They would go around door to door, knocking, asking for money, um, and just presenting themselves as, you know, the square white, um, anti hippies that they were. And, uh, yeah, college Republicans borrowed that technique as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's all there. It's all in the mix for sure. And, and I think, I think there's always one thing to remember about the 1960s, uh, and the kind of mythologization of the 1960s. Um, and this is probably true of any time period. Most most people aren't engaged in the counterculture in the 1960s, and they certainly weren't here in, in Great Britain. I asked my my parents about the 1960s. They said they just they went on caravan holidays, and that was as radical as they as they got. And and most most people aren't taking LSD. Most people aren't going on protests. Most people aren't going to Woodstock. They live painfully ordinary lives because that's. That's the, the 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 politics of the everyday, isn't it? And so um, there there is a, you know I, I think that this the sort of perception again it's a popular culture perception of, of of campus radicalism. That's a really tiny 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 number of people, um, and and maybe that that was part of the reason why the backlash against it a is so successful. 
because I think it really was was successful. But also, there were you know people worrying about you know the American way of life, whatever you want to call that. But it was I doubt it was ever really under any any kind of threat from college students. No, absolutely not. And it's funny too because so many people think of the campus radicals as um, as being you know, anti-war and just devoted to this, this cause of um, anti-imperialism and anti-capitalism. That's very true from some of the loudest voices on campus. But when you look at these demonstrations, the, the number of participants grows as the draft becomes, um, becomes more of an issue, right? So the students who are protesting are protesting because they themselves do not want to go to Vietnam to fight. Um, had they not been drafted, I'm not sure that they'd be participating in any sort of anti-war protest. It was a very, very personal issue for so many of these students. And then, of course, once the draft is reformed and, and once we're out of Vietnam, though that does take several years, um, but you really see the protest just dwindle. I mean, they yeah. just, it's almost down to nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I mean, that's that's a great point, and I'm glad that you said that. I mean, most <laughs> the the story that we, or the mythology that we have about this, this period, a lot of that also comes from, you know, newspapers and sensational headlines and covering Mm. the size of the protests and the number of participants, but not saying, you know, how many of these participants were actually radical, how many of these participants were engaging in the police or with, you know, committing acts of property destruction or, um, arson. I mean, those numbers are so small. Um, and also, um, yeah, I mean, just the fact that that it almost completely ends by by the time the war is dwindling down is is yeah. proof enough that these people are not lifelong committed radicals. Well, well, that that that's true. I mean, because they they're just people at the end of the day. You know, they they um, who, who went most of whom probably went to college to further their their prospects and to move move on in life. And you know, history and circumstance radicalize them in in, in certain ways. And um. And we, it, it, I guess that um, you talk this, this, this kind of um, mythologization at the time through like newspapers um, uh, who, who you know are, are drawn to a good story. But the you know the, the the real story I suppose is how the the kind of the the the, the liberal ideas or or left ideas of of um, those campus uh, radicals. Um, filter into the mainstream in the the, the, the coming decades. There's certainly attitudes towards, say, sexuality or... Um... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Civil rights or what have you, you know, arguably were transformed because of the 1960s. But also there's been this cultural, essentially cultural civil war ever since with um, the uh, it's very well-coordinated and well-organized and well-funded backlash. And that leads me to wonder, were, you know, is it true to say that in the mid-1960s, conservatives looked at the state of the world with kind of horror? Um, uh, or were they, you know, did they feel particularly threatened by what they saw? Um, as college student, I mean, it, I'll, I'll just speak to college students. I, I don't think so. Um, I think some of that horror had to be ginned up um, by the people who were their leaders. So um, the Buckleys um, and the other mentors. Um, and and of course, that was the whole mission of, um, I'll, I'll just stick to talking to Buckley for a second, but there are other magazines, there are other editors, but Buckley in particular, the, the mission of um, National Review was to provide what he would call an alternative media, right? The claim that he that he laid is that um, American media as as an establishment was far too liberal. Um, and then over time, of course, now the right uses the word liberal to mean leftist, um, which it's not. <laughs> I firmly don't believe that our that we have um, a strong. Uh, I mean, there are leftist media publications today, but that's, you wouldn't call the New York Times um, a leftist magazine unless you were on the right. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think in in Buckley's, you know, trying to gin up a movement that's, he's got to convince 17, 18, 19 year olds that yes, your way of life as you know it, or as your parents may have experienced it is rapidly changing because look, we're integrating the colleges or, um, you know, we're not requiring students to attend chapel service or, you know, whatever it is. And that, um, if, if I can draw another parallel to today, the discussion we just had about, you know, some of the, um, the hippies being overrepresented in in the media and the way that we think about them, the same thing is happening now, right? If if your listeners have followed uh, the recent events at Harvard and MIT and Penn, mm-hmm. um, the recent resignation of President Claudine Gay in Harvard, um, that is again not representative of American campuses. The average American college student goes to a community college or a large state public school, mm-hmm. not Harvard, not a private elite institution with a fifty billion dollar endowment, right? So if you, I forget the count now, but um, someone did a count of how many times Claudine Gay was a headline in the New York Times, uh, and it was probably two dozen in the matter of like ten days or something like that. And so again, it's it's part of a media story. The public understanding is shaped by, you know, what makes the headlines. And again, it's, it's not representative of all of American higher ed. Yeah. And um, I, I, I guess that, um, you know, if, if you look at that, um, uh, that, that kind of misrepresentation, uh, that's, that's actually quite, quite common. That's actually sort of something that, that, that happens with a, a degree of, um, 
uh, of regularity. So coming back to something we were talking at the at the beginning of um, uh, the uh, interview, um, when we talked about Karl Rove, and for individuals like Karl Rove, what is the what was their kind of journey from um, the, those kind of campus years through to you know the, the heights of, of of power and influence? What yeah. It's almost a straight shot. So in Carl Rove's case, um, he's a college student at the University of Utah. He does not complete his degree. He um, he withdraws from the university in 1969 uh, because he's offered a job to work in, um, I believe it's the National College Republicans or it's um, it might even just be the the GOP as an organ. But anyway, he leaves Utah. Um, and moves to Washington, D.C., and he works for several years as a lobbyist and a political strategist. Um, and then, you know, by the late 80s and 90s, he's an advisor to the president of the United States. Right, right. Because, yes, he was one of the the old guard that was um, brought, brought back in uh, when uh, Junior um, became became president. Yes. There's, a, there's another kind of uh, sort of story uh, which is, always kind of interests me about liberals that moved to the right in the 60s. Um, mm-hmm. um, I think maybe you could describe Daniel Bell as one, as one of those, but there, there were people who were broadly sympathetic towards things like the civil rights movement and be, believing you know, in, in, in terms of classic liberalism that all people should be treated fairly and have equal rights under the law. But when, to say perhaps towards the, the, the later 1960s, protest movements move more to the left, um, and there, you know, you, you know, things like Chicago in '68, there's more kind of visible chaos. They're sort of repulsed by that and find their way. I think some of these people find their way eventually into into the, like the neocon sort of yeah. movement. Was that was was that a particular? Was were those just a couple of outliers, or were there quite a few people like that? Yeah, I think I think they're mostly outliers, but um, maybe a handful. So you mentioned Daniel Bell, David Horowitz also comes to mind, um, and there are others. I mean, there even if you go back a few generations, there's um, even more extreme examples of like uh, former communists like Whitaker Chambers moving to the right. Um, so yeah, I mean they're there. And they're very, very, very fascinating to me. But I think I also have, and perhaps I'm just being, um, um, I I just look at this very critically. And I think there's almost a bit of a grift that goes on from people who say, oh, I used to be, you know, the enemy and now I have seen the light now, you know, now I'm on the right side of history or, you know, the right side of politics. Um, And I, I think that becomes their stick. Yeah, And so the fact that they continue to stay in politics, moving, you know, from one end to the other and not saying, you know what, perhaps let me be a little introspective about this. Maybe my politics are wrong. Maybe I need to be quiet and keep thinking about this. Right. The fact that they don't step away from politics, but they stay in and they, you know, sort of like do an about face and they're on the attack to their former side. I, um, I just look at that very suspiciously. I, I'm not sure what exactly to make of it, but um, it, it seems to be um, in pursuit of something. I, I suppose a lot of these people, you know, to, to be in politics and to be anything other than a sort of the most superficial of career politicians, you have to 
articulate your belief and you have to, you know, our, our beliefs are the most kind of the grounding bedrock of our world. You know, you either believe something or you don't. And to go, well, yes, you know, I, I, w- I was there, you know, marching against Vietnam in 68, but now some bombing's okay. You know, <laughs> that kind of, <laughs> it depends on who you're bombing and when. That's the, that, that's, that's the thing. Um, right. I, I mean, in, um, and I guess one, I guess one, one, one thing that I, I did wonder was where, you know, you, you, you have people who have kind of um, honestly, shall we say, honestly held conservative views. They believe in things like the the, the preservation of institutions. And this is sort of like, if you're going to define conservatism, that's kind of what it is, really. You know, the, the um, but in I suppose America, not not exclusively, because Britain has no is no moral superiority on this at all. But America is also also shaped by the legacy of slavery and segregation. So one of the institutions that conservatism, and this is the bit that isn't said out loud, is trying to sort of preserve is essentially white supremacy. Um, well, they do. I mean, some people say that out loud and others say it more politely. They, they talk about um, things like law and order or ordered liberty. And, and what they mean is quite literally ordered. They mean ranked. So yeah. if you can think of a hierarchy, that's that's what they like. And then you can imagine from there where all the pieces fall into place. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's not that quiet. And and there are also, I think, in the in, now that we're in the Trump years um, and on the right there are some anti-institutionalists um, of, of kind of the burn it down variety, yeah. right? Who want to shred the constitution or they won't, they don't say that they say they want to protect the constitution, but actually they don't. If you look at what they, what they do and, and the people that they put in power and what those yeah. people do. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think American conservatism is just in a, in a weird moment that kind of almost escapes definition. Yeah, well, I mean, this is this is when I, as I said, I thought I, I didn't know if you could call it conservatism at the moment. I mean, here in in Great Britain, you have this, uh, con, you know, the the oldest and most successful conservative party in the world, perhaps even the most successful modern political party in the world. This has become this strange nihilistic kind of um, source of source of complete anarchy that attacks. Uh, institutions, be it the police or the judiciary or the civil service or what have you, kind of week in, week out. And um, again, yeah, what that is, what you know, what you call it, that's a, a job for political scientists in the next 20 years to to figure out. But um, I, I guess... Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, of... I think it has to do, this is just my suspicion, but it has to do with where they see themselves in the institution. If they see themselves as controlling the institutions as they always have traditionally conservatively, um, then they like the institution. And when they feel like they have, their power has waned or they've completely lost control, then they don't like the institution. So it's, it may not be the institution itself. That's the thing. It's the power. And where is that power concentrated? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's quite the insight. That's I'm, I'm going to. That's, that's my 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 takeaway from today. That's really kind of uh, yeah. I think I think you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. But let's just talk about the book to give it its plug. Um, 
is this now is uh, resistance from the right currently um, available to or in, in all online and offline retailers? Yes, yes. Um, so if if readers are interested and they want immediate access to it, uh, you can download the audiobook. It's on Audible um, and maybe other places. It's also digitally available on Kindle for instant access. And then I think shipping to the UK doesn't take very long. Um, yeah. Or you, uh, sorry, I imagine you've got worldwide listeners. Shipping outside of the U.S. I don't think takes very long. Just um, from an acquaintance of mine who ordered it and got it in about a week. So, um, you know, it's there: paperback, hardback, <laughs> Audible, Kindle, however um, you like. As we always say at the uh, in this podcast, if you are going to buy the book, please try to support a local retailer. Um, if you can sure. avoid buying from a big online warehouse, of whom we won't mention for legal reasons. Um, please, please try to to find a local retailer to support because once that network of uh, that kind of ecology of small shops has gone, probably ain't coming back. So yeah, absolutely. Libraries um, as well. Libraries, remember like those? <laughs> request library access. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, Lauren, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today, um, and I'm so pleased that we. Uh, for for the um uh, to the, the to the listenership, we had various various sort of kind of uh, uh, scheduling misfires and, and things like that. So we, we got there in the end, and it was it was great to have this chat. And um, it would be a, a pleasure to talk with you about um, you know conservatism, radicalism, politics, and campuses at some point in the future, if you if you want it. Sure, I'd love to. Okay, all right. Well, thank you so much, and let's finish there, and uh, we'll catch you again soon. Okay. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.